This Curbsiders episode is sponsored by the American College of Physicians. ACP's all-new CME 100 video package is now available. Learn and earn with 75 hours of virtual scientific lectures from Internal Medicine Meeting 2021, plus an exclusive 25 bonus CME sessions and nearly three years of access. Order now to earn CME at your convenience at acponline.org slash 100curb. That's code 100CURB. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Okay, so let's do it. <laughs> how do we do this again? Paul, yeah. I don't remember how to start the show, uh, but I guess this is the Curbsiders. Tonight, this is a Tales from the Curbside episode where you and I are going to go do a rapid rundown of our favorite pearls from some recent episodes on stable coronary disease, stable angina, hypercalcemia, and heavy menstrual bleeding and anticoagulation, what we were kind of calling women's hematology. So... This is a great episode, a lot of high-yield pearls. And Paul, before we do that, can you just remind them, uh, who who are we? <laughs> sure. And before I do that, let me tell you, really nicely done. I felt like that was professional. I feel like we've been doing this for like five years now, so that was, that was terrific. <laughs> we are, since you asked, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And in this particular episode, the the Tales from the Curbside, we actually, uh, the two of us will recap episodes that we've already done and sort of just reminisce fondly about what the experts have told us and try to distill it down into its its purest form for you, the listener. The first episode is number 279, Stable Angina with the Cardio Nerds, who have their own medical podcast, and they are prolific creators, so definitely check that out if you're a cardio nerd yourself which I'm sure many of you are. Our guests were doctors Dan Ambender and Rick Ferraro. And production on this one was done by Molly Hoyblein and just an insane uh, infographic on cardiac imaging <laughs> that that Beth Garbatelli did uh, along with work. input yeah. from both of our guests. So thanks to all them for the hard work on that. Uh, so check that out. We'll link to it uh, in the show notes. But one of the big questions we had on this was like, when does stable angina become unstable angina? Or, you know, how do you tell the difference between the two? Paul, I think you actually asked this question and and our guest actually made the point that stable angina has to start somewhere. So at some point there's going to be new angina and, you know, you, right. you wouldn't necessarily call that unstable angina. But it seemed to me, Paul, that the the main thing is like, how quickly is this happening? Because uh, they made the point like, the speed of symptoms is going to probably determine the speed of workup. And, uh, you know, if it's just the person that's like they walk out to to uh, take out the trash and they get a little bit of shortness of breath or a little twinge of pain and then they rest for 30 seconds and it goes away, you know, you got some time to work that up. But if it's the person that is starting to have pain at rest and uh, it's lasting for longer and longer periods of time, you know, that's probably someone you're going to work up a lot, a lot quicker. I'm not sure if you had a different takeaway from that point. 
No. In fact, they made the point that stable angina by definition is stable, which I, I thought is, is helpful to remind yourself. I think anytime you have a patient with the right risk factors that we'll talk about who comes in with, with chest pain with exertion, it's a little bit frightening and you get kind of alarmed. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is a sort of chronic progressive disease most of the time and you have time to kind of figure it out and do your workup and, and escalate therapy appropriately and you don't have to rush them right off for some sort of aggressive invasive intervention. And we talked about the plaques as well uh, in stable angina. We typically think of these are like building up slowly over time. And there's unstable angina. When you get that quicker progression of symptoms, the idea is that there could be an actual ruptured plaque and you're getting partial thrombosis that's causing the symptoms. And that's a urgent, more urgent situation and it's definitely treated differently. I thought it was also a little bit neat that they made the point that in the time of high sensitivity troponin, a lot less is being called unstable angina because we're calling these NSTEMI now because we see troponin elevation pretty easily. Maybe we're overcalling NSTEMIs even is the, is the thought that I had, Paul. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. One of the other things I really admired about our guests is I feel like oftentimes in cardiology, there's sort of an ethos of, of I'm going to get myself in trouble, but like a, a chance to cath is a chance to cure. <laughs> and I, I think one of the, the things that our, our guests sort of emphasize is actually the the role of prevention and sort of the chronic management. You know, so even if you progress to stable angina, even sort of after the prevention part of the show, sort of fundamental medication management is actually really critically important. But they, they talk in terms of the prevention side of things about risk stratification and how to assess risk and then also how to sort of manage the prevention itself. So the risk stratification includes things like the qualitative risk factors. So things like tobacco use or comorbid diabetes or uh, dyslipidemia. And then quantifying that risk, so using things like the ASCVD risk calculator to really kind of get a number, I guess along those lines, probably coronary artery calcium scoring would also sort of fall kind of under the heading of quantifying risk as well. And then they also include the, the idea of thinking about risk enhancing factors, things like family history, that kind of stuff. Because really, what you're trying to do is prevent it from happening in the first place, because we'll talk about this, I guess. But once you get to the point where you're in the, the management phase of the show, you really don't have a whole lot of options above and beyond medical management that are all that effective, at least in terms of reducing mortality. So that the focus should be on your prolonging therapies, things like statins, things like your aspirins, and all the lifestyle changes that we talk about, but probably don't spend enough time actually counseling our patients for things like exercising routinely and tobacco cessation and uh, addressing blood pressure management in an ongoing way. So I, I, I guess that was maybe it just because it spoke to my primary care heart. That's one of the things I took away. I don't, I don't know. Did I, did I understand that right, Matt? I, I think so. I, I think the good news for us in primary care is that we are highly relevant to this condition <laughs> because it's largely medical management, risk factor reduction, which as internists, if we're good at nothing, we're at least good at doing that. And what Paul was referring to there was this four plus two for cardiovascular prevention that the cardio nerds had come up with. And Beth made a, a wonderful graphic that, that summarizes all this that we can link to. And one of the things that struck me, because like we, there's so many conditions in cardiology and there's so many indications for the various medications. When you all were talking about beta blockers, I thought it was a good reminder that beta blockers for someone with stable angina beta blockers are actually just an anti-anginal. Like it's not a life prolonging medication. Now that's different than if you're talking about a patient with systolic heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, or the patient that's coming in with like an acute coronary syndrome. But I think, you know, it's one of those things where like, we're just like, oh yeah, someone has coronary artery disease. They have to be on a beta blocker. But 
you know, not all patients feel great on beta blockers and sometimes they don't want to take a lot of meds. And so it's good to remember, you know, in the case of stable CAD, our guests were saying aspirin and high intensity statin and then all the other risk factor modification Paul talked about, that's where the money's at. So if you're on the fence about whether or not the patient needs a beta blocker, just remember that in stable angina, if that's the only indication, it's not going to prolong their life. The other stuff that we talked about with them which I I just wanted to remind the audience about, we did an episode on this back in 2019 at the ACP conference, is this condition called INOCA, which is ischemia with no obstructive coronary arteries or non-obstructive coronary artery disease. It's, uh, depending on what source you read, they, they change it up a little bit. But essentially, this means that the patient has a chest pain syndrome, they may even have EKG findings, or they may even have a positive stress test. But when you go to do angiography, like either conventional angiography or I guess a CT coronary angiography, you don't necessarily see these like discrete lesions of the large coronary arteries. The answer there is that they may have like microvascular dysfunction um, or just like more diffuse disease in general. And there's really no specific lesion that you can find to intervene upon. And like we just talked about, uh, the treatment's going to be the same uh, as it would for someone with stable angina. Um, this is just like another subcategory underneath coronary artery disease or stable coronary disease. So definitely think about that. And the last thing I'll say on that subject is that we talked about the ischemia trial, which was one of these studies on catheterization. And there was a subgroup in that where they identified non-obstructive coronary disease, and it was mostly women. So just think about this, especially if you have a woman um, who is presenting with what you think could be anginal symptoms, just consider the fact that this condition I know can exists. And Paul, I'm not sure if you've made the uh, slam dunked on this diagnosis yet and uh, felt awesome, but I know it's out there and I'm, I, it's always like in the back of my mind thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, it does. I'm kind of reassured that it does exist because I feel like there's the patient who has all the right risk factors and sort of all the right features for things. Then maybe the PCI was not necessarily diagnostic or it does not sort of like you, you like to see. I think one of the things that's sort of the way I would like cardiology to behave is like a big old piece of plumbing is blocked and that's their problem. And I can be like, they're figured it right. out. But like instead, it seems like it's much more subtle than that, which is probably, I think, probably one of the one of the reasons why medical therapy is sort of the best that we have in terms of prolonging mortality, because the the other things like fixing the plumbing are not necessarily fixing the underlying problem. Yeah, absolutely. I said that EKG or stress tests could be abnormal for these patients, but it's not always going to be. I mean, those even in those are not tests are not 100% sensitive, of course. If you have suspicion, then call up your friendly neighborhood cardiologist and talk to them about the case and say, you know, is there more advanced imaging that we can do because the options are just becoming there's like PET scan, there's MRI, there's there's all these advanced imaging modalities now, and I think it's becoming hard to know like which one would be the best. And it, so if you have a patient and your suspicion remains high and the conventional testing that we're used to as internists is negative or not giving you the answer you need, then you can always try for some of this advanced imaging with the help from your cardiology colleagues. Hey, audience, a reminder that this episode is sponsored by the American College of Physicians and their all-new CME 100 video package. This includes 75 hours of internal medicine meeting, 2021 lectures, and associated Q&A, 
Plus, you get an exclusive 25 bonus CME sessions and nearly three years of access and CME eligibility to 100 hours of high-quality practice-changing updates delivered by world-class faculty. And you can explore all of this and all their sessions online. Yeah, that's right, Matt. I don't know if you've had the recent experience of scrambling for CME and MOC credit, but I just was reminded that I need to really catch up on those things. And ACP offered a lot of great opportunities to do that. We attended the meeting this year. It's really, it really is remarkable. You know, I think we're, we're people that just by dint of doing the podcast have to be on top of clinical updates and clinical management. And yet I still learn so much of these meetings just being brought to you by experts in the field who tell you what you need to know in a concise and really clear fashion. And then there's time at the end for questions and answers and everyone asks the same questions that you have. So it's been Every meeting is just full of knowledge and to have it available to you for the next three years is really a remarkable deal. Paul, I completely agree. And I want the audience to order ACP's CME 100 now so they can start earning CME at their own pace. They can visit acponline.org forward slash 100 curb and use the code 100 curb. That's acponline.org forward slash 100 curb and use the code 100CURB. So, Paul, I think we're going to move on to the next topic. This is number 280. This is heavy menstrual bleeding, anticoagulation, and coagulopathy in menstruating patients. Our guest for this was Dr. Bethany Samuelson-Bano, and this was produced by the great Avital Oglasser, who's, of course, our chief of perioperative medicine. Paul, why don't you start us off with this one? Yeah, no, thanks, Matt. And I, I think, you know, listeners know that I I like fundamentals. And so I, I, one of the things that I really liked was just in terms of discussion of how to take a menstrual history. And we, we touched on a little bit about how stigmatized that sometimes is and some of the inherent sexism there. And oftentimes, the menstrual history is not even asked of a patient, which is um, criminal. But in any case, uh, that begs the question, well, how does one do that? And Dr. Banno was saying that she actually just starts by asking the patient, tell me about your periods, just that easy. And then sitting and waiting, just like we teach in, in medical school and letting the patient tell you the story. And they will often give you a lot of the details that you need, oftentimes textbook answers. And then the follow-up questions that you might ask if you've not uncovered it are things like how many days in duration are your periods? Do you pass clots? And then also, and something that I probably did not do enough of before this episode, is asking about the impact on quality of life as well. Like, are your periods sufficient to the point that they're impacting that you're not able to go to school or to work? Or do they, you know, do they impact your, your day-to-day living when you're having your menses? Which I think is actually a really important detail. And then we, you'll get into this, I think, a little bit later. But taking a family history of, of heavy periods is also really important, too, because that actually may modify the patient's response. Because what's been taught to the patient as normal might be representing a family history of actually heavy periods, if that makes it kind of sense. Right. Right. That was, I thought that was a, a fantastic point by our guest. She, she said, if the patient is only talking to her mom and her sisters and they all have this, then <laughs> right. they're, they're going to normalize what is not truly normal. And one of the most common ones that she said you could think about is von Willebrand factor deficiency. It's common about 1% of the population. And you can ask them about mucocutaneous bleeding, like are they bleeding from the gums? If they had bleeding from the GI tract, are they having nosebleeds? And then in the postpartum period, did they have bleeding that lasted beyond six weeks? And in that case, you you could your interest could be piqued, especially if they also give a family history of similar things. And in that case, uh, we asked about the basic workup, which would be you could send coags, PT, PTT, and then von Willebrand's panel usually would include an antigen, uh, von Willebrand antigen, and then an activity. So you know how much antigens there, 
and what's the activity, is it normal, abnormal, and also a factor eight level. And then of course, Dr. Bano was saying, we should have a very low threshold to check a ferritin in menstruating women. And she reminded us that not, not all women with iron deficiency are anemic and not all the symptoms of iron deficiency are related to anemia. So, you know, this is very near and dear to the show because of Stuart, who has uh, been beating this drum for many years now. So <laughs> low threshold to check a ferritin and to replete the iron if it's low. Yeah, no, right. Well, along those lines, that was actually one of the questions that um, that she asked to even determine whether or not periods were heavy or not. Is it just, have you had a prior diagnosis of iron deficiency anemia or have you been on iron supplementation? And then other historical questions that she found useful. This one I, I love. If you ask a patient if their periods are moderate, heavy, or very heavy, and they answer very heavy, not surprisingly, that's actually very heavy is a pretty good predictor of actually heavy menstrual bleeding. And then the the other question that is I have now added to my armamentarium is, do you ever double up on protection, meaning do you ever use a pad and a tampon at the same time during your periods too? So those, those three questions that she asked to assess for heavy menstrual periods, you know, moderate, heavy, or very heavy, doubling up on menstrual products, and then also, have you ever had a diagnosis of iron deficiency anemia or her sort of three background questions to assess for heavy menstrual bleeding in addition to all the other workup and sort of basic history that we talked about. So Matt, let's say let's say we did it. We actually uh, figured out that the patient doesn't need to have heavy menstrual bleeding. So where, where do we go from here? What can we do for them? This, this is probably my biggest take home from the episode is that there's several things we can do as internists. So you can prescribe NSAIDs, which we don't exactly understand how they work. Maybe something to do with prostaglandins. I don't know, Paul. <laughs> yeah, sure. Probably. The pleiotropic effect of NSAIDs. <laughs> but uh, transexamic acid is is a safe treatment that you can give for heavy menstrual bleeding. It does not cause clots, Paul. It does not cause clots, which our guest said probably five or six times. And I believe <laughs> her. Minimum. And uh, it, that, that's a very valuable. We also asked about the cost of that because I haven't prescribed it before. She said she hasn't had too much trouble and that the dose is 1,300 milligrams or 1.3 grams three times a day for five days, and they can take it monthly during their period, and that can be very helpful. So either NSAIDs or transexamic acid. And then the other thing she talked about is that she's really a fan because you can give also give oral contraception or hormonal contraception, doesn't have to be oral. And she's a big fan of the long acting reversible contraception, um, which there's implantable devices that usually go in the arm or the forearm. Of course, there's the IUD, which usually they're levonorgestrel IUDs. Right. And she made the point that that's important because the plain copper IUDs can actually worsen bleeding. So those are not your, your larks of choice when you're trying to deal with heavy menstrual bleeding. So definitely, audience, remember that because uh, this is a very common condition. So ask about it, especially now that you know you can give NSAIDs, you can give transexamic acid, you can talk to them about hormonal contraception, and you can help your patient with their bleeding. Moving on, Paul, the final episode that we're going to talk about on this one is number 281. This is hypercalcemia with Dr. Carl Pillay, and of course, this is produced by the great Nora Toronto, um, who also did the the infographics for this one. And Paul, we, we missed you on this one. You were there, and then <laughs> technical difficulties. I can't remember quite what happened. No, I just think I wasn't around, actually. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I, probably technical difficulties are different. I mean, all of this sounds like me. I'm notoriously unreliable. <laughs> Matt, we've got a bit of an unusual sponsor for this episode. We are sponsored in part by the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast that we are strongly recommending to you. Yes, I know that you're 
already listening to a podcast. Everyone's podcast queue is jam-packed full already, but we're really going to suggest that you add the Jordan Harbinger show to your podcast lineup. Jordan's show was named one of Apple's 2018 podcasts of the year. It is aimed at making you better informed, a more critical thinker, so you get a sense of how the world actually works. He talks to a whole slew of professionals and interesting human beings in general, from neuroscientists to counterfeiters to spies, astronauts, authors, thinkers, and performers. Matt, there are a couple episodes you particularly enjoyed and actually incorporated in your own life, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah, I, I've been listening to Jordan's show for a couple years now because he, he, he does have really interesting guests and he has a really interesting background himself where he's kind of like an expert in social situations to the point where certain like government organizations and things actually send people and he was at some point training like corporate people and uh, maybe spies, things like that. But maybe really? I'm misremembering. Yeah. I, I need this podcast. Then. Yeah. <laughs> Social situations. That sounds amazing. But uh, the recent guest that I enjoyed, he had on Tristan Harris, who uh, used to be part of like either Google or Facebook, one of those, and then now is kind of sounding the alarm about how social me media is like sort of like controlling us all, which I, is easy to believe. And he sure. was part of that big uh, doc documentary on Netflix. The other one that I really loved was, Paul, you know I love some Cal Newport. Uh, he wrote Deep Work. He wrote Digital Minimalism. And now he's attacking email on that most recent episode. And uh, Paul, you know my relationship with email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that made me rethink that. Uh, I, I like it. The Some really interesting in-depth conversation. So I really recommend it to the audience. And Paul, how can they, how can they hear the Jordan Harbinger show? Well- we enjoy the show. We think you will, too. And there's clearly a lot to like. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So this one was uh, th this one was a really packed episode, but where to start, I think... Just reminding the audience that when you find hypercalcemia, which most labs will say is a calcium of 10.5 or greater, you got to first do the Paul Williams method, which is got to repeat <laughs> it to make sure that it's still elevated. Uh, this, uh, If the patient's particularly dehydrated, uh, it can kind of falsely elevate things. So you want to repeat it, make sure they've had something to drink and, and see how it goes. And then- That's actually the modified Williams maneuver. I've actually changed it because someday I'm going to actually study um, variations in renal function based on seasonality. But <laughs> now my, my modified maneuver is now, please drink lots of water and then come in and repeat your labs. And I feel like that fixes a lot of laboratory abnormalities, but yeah. sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Uh, you know, Paul, let, let's take a brief detour into- um, <laughs> Why do we need to get fasting labs? I uh, personally, Never. most of the time, I do not care about fasting labs and uh, patients will fight with me. I'm like, you, you just go to the lab now. They're like, but I'm not fasting. And I, I'm just like, well, I'm checking in A1C. So I don't really care. And, you know, or I'm just, I just want your creatinine and an A1C. I, I don't really need it. And with lipids, the total cholesterol and the HDL cholesterol are not really affected um, right. by the fasting state, it's more the triglycerides. So you can factor that in and you can still, you know, calculate their ASCVD risk. Um, so I would try to get non-fasting uh, non-fasting labs first. It's just so much better on the patients. And that way, because patients are like skipping meds, they're coming in, they haven't eaten for 12 hours, <laughs> sometimes right. longer, they're dehydrated, their electrolytes are all whacked out. Hypertensive, yeah, it's just a mess. Yeah. 
All right, so back to back to hypercalcemia. Paul William modified Paul Williams method. Patient drinks. They're still their calcium's still high. Now you got to figure out: is this PTH mediated or is this non-PTH mediated? It kind of reminds me, Paul, we talked about hyponatremia. We're trying to figure out: is ADH turned on or off? In this case, we're talking about PTH. The PTH mediated causes, of course, primary hyperparo, which is common, and then. Some ra- the rare ones, familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia and uh, lithium use, which should be obvious. Like if the patient's taking lithium, you probably will know that, but that can do it as well. And then the non-PTH mediated pathway, you got to think about PTHRP, malignancy, and then this could be the patient that has this milk alkali. They're taking way too much calcium and vitamin D and uh, they're dehydrated or they're, they're in renal failure and their calcium level goes through the roof. I think there was like this nightmare scenario of a patient with a dental abscess who is dehydrated and taking NSAIDs for their abscess pain and then also just pounding away the calcium that they've been <laughs> taking chronically and then end up with a, a I think you had a theoretical calcium of 14 for this poor patient who I right. remember actually, who doesn't exist. Right. Granulomatous disease also is in the non-PTH mediated and, and, you know, so that's what we're doing there. Paul, interpreting PTH, I think on another recent episode, I, I made the point that I, I'm not super comfortable interpreting PTH. I wasn't. I'm much more comfortable now. We've had multiple episodes where we talked about it. What did you think about his point about PTH that is in the normal range with hypercalcemia? Yeah, there's. I, I think one of the things that was talked about, and I'm not sure if this is what you were goading me to or not, but I'm just going to talk about the thing that I want to talk about anyway. Is um, <laughs> you're an expert. Yeah, <laughs> I personally, in my own practice, had a couple of patients who are on thiazide diuretics, and I'm like, oh, that, that's the cause of hypercalcemia. I'll stop them. It'll get better. It'll be fine. And then I, I probably didn't think about that as critically as I probably should have. And one of the points that was raised is that sort of these these causes of hypercalcemia, like the thiazide diuretics, like lithium, may actually be maybe sort of overlying underlying primary hyperparathyroidism. So that our, our guest made the point that there are homeostatic mechanisms in place to kind of maintain your calcium levels. So even in the presence of something that sort of deranges that a little bit, your body should be able to adjust. So even in the setting of sort of a high normal PTH and a slightly elevated calcium in the setting of a thiazide, what you may be seeing is the thiazide exacerbating, if I understood this correctly, an underlying primary hyperparathyroidism. So don't just think that you won the game just because you stopped the thiazide diuretic. You should still be looking and thinking critically about the numbers because you may see an unmasked um, primary hyperparathyroidism that will eventually declare itself. Right. Did I understand that right? Yeah, the PTH the PTH should be suppressed. It should be low if there's a high calcium. If the PTH is either slightly high or in the high normal range and there's a high calcium, you, you have to think about could this be a primary hyperparathyroidism that was just unmasked, you know, that it was unmasked by being on hydrochlorothiazide or lithium or something like that. And so really, really give it thought and you might want to stop the medication, repeat the labs and and see what things settle to once you've removed what you think is the causative agent, just to make sure you don't miss a primary hyperparathyroid diagnosis. And then he made the point that he likes to check a phosphorus because it, it often comes back oh, yeah. quicker. And if the phosphorus is low, it suggests that PTH is turned on. So it's like a PTH mediated process. One of the times you could get fooled there, I guess, is if PTHRP is at play. But right. still, it's a, it, it's, it's a good thing that you can, you can look at early on. You'll get that back often before you get back the PTH. So look if the phosphorus is low. Think it, it might be PTH mediated. And the fact that there is a presence of a hypophosphatemia clinic just blew my mind in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and for this episode, we did spend a good amount of time, Paul, talking about primary hyperparathyroidism, 
what workup should we do? And when should we pull the trigger on um, sending someone for surgery? Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I feel like some of the indications that are listed in these guidelines are age less than 50. And the idea being is that this might actually be cost effective for the patient. So rather than waiting and monitoring and agonizing and deciding what to do and doing sort of endless testing, you may actually, in these younger patients with primary hyperparathyroidism, you might just save them a lot of healthcare exposure by just going ahead and pulling the trigger on the surgery early, which makes sense to me. Yeah. And if they're going to live to age 80, having hyperparathyroidism for like 30 years is going <laughs> to, you know, they're, they're, they're probably, uh, their bones are going to be shot. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah, and then of course, long-term exposure. That's a great point. Along those lines, significant hypercalcemia defined as uh, greater than one milligram per deciliter above the upper limit of normal. Renal dysfunction is an indication in the setting of primary hyperparathyroidism. I think the idea being that uh, hyperparathyroidism in concert with the renal dysfunction um, has adverse bone mineral consequences. So those things tend to work synergistically together to accelerate bad business. Also, kidney stones or a risk of kidney stones are indications for surgery for, for primary hyperparathyroidism. And, and he, to that point, they encourage some kind of renal imaging is my understanding. Like, so you, I think we were talking off air and you said either ultrasound or CT scan is, is sufficient in the, for these guidelines. Yes. Yeah. There, there was just, just some sort of renal imaging is, is what they say. So I think it's, I think it's your choice, but I, you know, personally, I think a, a non-contrast CT is, is the way to go. If you're, if you're looking for stones, I mean, yeah. As you you made the point to me off air, Paul, like you've tried you've tried to do renal ultrasounds before. Like trying to follow find a stone in there is the sensitivity just just can't be good compared right. to. If uh, I find a kidney, I am I'm doing cartwheels, so which is probably but that yeah. might speak to my own skill level. <laughs> I'm sure um, the ultrasonographers could find the kidney, but <laughs> yes, but still, the sensitivity can't be as good. And then the last indication that is listed in the guidelines is a history of fragility fractures. So they recommend DEXA scanning. And then you all had a conversation. I might actually ask you to elaborate on this about this vertebral fracture analysis, which was certainly not something that I had thought about routinely or had done routinely. So it's, do you remember sort of the conversation that you had about that? Yeah, sure. And I'll remind people that we're talking about the indications we're talking about here are largely like the asymptomatic patient with hyperparathyroid right. primary hyperparathyroid when would you think about doing this you know if someone's usually their calcium's not much higher than like the 11 to 12 range or something like that but if the person's like severely symptomatic you know that's that's a different patient this was surprising to me this is definitely practice changing the osteoporosis his what he was talking about cuz he he mentioned not just most of the time I'm getting dexas Paul I'm getting spine and femoral neck you know, mm-hmm. yep, and I guess it just hasn't been the local practice to get the distal forearm or the wrist in places I've worked anyway. And then I hadn't even heard of this vertebral fracture analysis. And since we did this episode, I've seen a couple patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. It's just shocking. I guess they just come out of the woodwork, Paul. It's like <laughs> you learn a new word, then all of a sudden you start hearing it everywhere. Yep. And you can actually order in my institution. I was at Cashlack. I was able to order a DEXA scan with the vertebral fracture analysis in there. And uh, it it was an axial. So it was like, you know, uh, spine and the femoral neck with the vertebral fracture analysis. And this is the idea is that if you did see asymptomatic vertebral fractures, then that would be an indication to start to put this patient on the list for surgery. Right. And I think he made the point that the the majority of vertebral fractures are asymptomatic. I think the number thrown out, if I remember right, was 30% are symptomatic, which means that most of them are not. So it's you're not going to find them unless you go looking for them. 
Yeah, I don't remember the specific number, but definitely a common thing that you should look out for. So to me, this was just very helpful because, you know, this comes up all the time, uh, just in clinic, but also on boards. And it's definitely something we should know as internists pretty well is how to work up hypercalcemia, and then certainly how to recognize primary hyperparathyroidism and what to do about it. So I hope the audience will, if they haven't already heard this whole one, they should go back and listen to it because we surely can't do it justice in like a five or 10 minute discussion about it here. Paul, is that it? Are we ready for the outro? I mean, I, I, I think we did it. All right. So let, let me say the magic words. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy? Sure. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website. And Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>